Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 83. That's quite a lot, doesn't it? 83. We've done a lot of these things. It does. I'd be happy if I get to that point myself. <laughs> so we all. And uh, for you regular GodPod listeners, you will know from that um, unmistakable voice that we have the great Michael Lloyd back with us. Well, you have Michael Lloyd back anyway. So. <laughs> and because we have Michael, we have biscuits. Exactly. <laughs> well, but no, because we have Michael, we don't have biscuits. <laughs> we did. <laughs> we, did. <laughs> we didn't have biscuits, but then Keith, our wonderful uh, technical person, did come up with some biscuits and one of the nice ch- chocolate ones. So um, thank you, Keith. And uh, so uh, we are back with the old team. We have uh, Michael. Hello. Uh, we have Jane. We do. And we have uh, myself, Graham, Graham Tomlin. So it's um, very good to be... Uh, back with the old team in GodPod. So um, uh, in GodPod 83, we're going to be looking at um, some really interesting questions that have come through from various parts of the world. And um, uh, we're going to start with one from uh, Michael John Philip. And um, I'm not sure where, he's come from, where he comes from or where he uh, writes from, but uh, he had a very interesting question. He says, um, uh, thanks very much for a wonderful podcast. Well, we kind of know it is. <laughs> uh, but he has a question about how God interacts with the world. He says, I was recently watching one of Eddie Izzard's stand-up shows where he raises a very interesting objection to God. He says, uh, you never wake up and hear God's given everyone an extra banana. What a wonderful day. Extra bananas for everyone. Um, now, I realise, he says, that God has revealed himself through Jesus. And it's the most, this is, this is Michael John, not Eddie, Eddie Izzard saying this. And that uh, that is the most clear evidence we have of God and his love for us. Uh, but my question is, why isn't God more clearly involved in our everyday world? Why does he not give people free bananas or write messages in the sky reminding people to live peacefully? Surely if God was more obviously involved, then more people would believe in and follow him. Also, if God had spoken with a booming voice, don't elect Hitler, he's bad, then it's conceivable that we would have avoided the Holocaust. I'm sure that God yearns to communicate with us, his children. But why is the communication often so vague? So there's the question. Um, why isn't God a bit more obvious? Why does he not communicate with us more directly? Um, surely it would be better if he did that so we'd know what to do and so on. Well, I think it's a very good question. I think that <clears throat> the two things I'd want to say start with, one negative and one positive. The first, the negative one is um, that this is a world that has, to some extent, cut itself off from God. Uh, and and therefore pays the price for having done that uh, because we have, as a species, uh, as as a cosmos, um, gone our own way. There is a, necessarily some kind of distance between us and God, um, such that things are not unambiguous. The world is ambiguous. It, it is difficult to discern God's hand. Things do happen because we cut ourselves off from the God who is the source of purpose, things happen that have no purpose, that are purposeless unless God reinvests them with meaning. Um, So that's the first thing, I think, the negative thing. And the second thing is that God seems to want to help us as God rather than as another creature, Uh, that he seems to work through creatures, primarily by inspiring, prompting, nudging, uh, driving creatures to 
to do his purposes for him. Even the resurrection, the kind of perhaps most obvious and dramatic intervention of God in human cosmic history <clears throat> is done by the agency of angels rolling the stone away. Stone away. Mm. So it seems as if he is committed to working in our world, but through creatures, through persuasion, rather than through direct action. Even a miracle like the feeding of the 5,000 is not done by magicking bananas into existence, but by taking what people offer him, what human agents uh, voluntarily offer, and then using them out of all proportion to what they are. But he doesn't magic things into being um, <clears throat> by acting in, in a way that... Uh, he acts as as God and not as a fellow creature, as I think the point I'm trying to make. It's also a way of talking about God, which we all do, that assumes that God is mostly inactive and then every so often presses a button or mm. interferes or something. Whereas, of course, the classic understanding of God is God is always active. Everything is held in being because God exists. Um, and... Uh, and therefore nothing happens, uh, nothing is or lives or um, uh, flourishes without the presence and activity of God. Um, and that uh, the fact that we have forgotten that mostly and are only looking for God to give us special bananas, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think is part of the problem, isn't it? As I say, it's a, it's a, it is an endemic problem um, in a lot of the way that we speak because because God does... Uh, occasionally do extraordinary mm. things using, as Mike says, the, the, the natural materials of the world, um, but in an extraordinary kind of way. Yes, because the question almost assumes that the bananas just have come somehow and then God gives you an extra one. Well, actually, all the bananas yeah. are from God. In the sense that, actually, when you think about it, every single day God gives us all kinds of signs of his presence. He gives us proof shelter over our heads he gives us air to breathe he gives us friends family he gives us jobs to do if we have <coughs> we have one he, in every day he showers us with gifts the problem is that we don't often see them as the gifts of god we don't often see them as signs of his of his love and so in some ways the problem is not so much in god's stinginess in giving us gifts or his inability to communicate with us it's actually our inability to to hear the messages and to see the the gifts that have been, that have been given that is the problem um actually if our eyes were open to them we would see every single thing that we receive as a as a gift from god as a as a as a sign of his presence that actually there are extra bananas every day if we opened our eyes to see them the problem is our our our, our inability to perceive these things which is why actually um the christian life is a is a kind of process of of having our eyes opened, enabling us to see the world in, an, in a new way, to see the world as a gift uh, rather than as a, just something that happens to be there. Um, and as you say, Jane, it's then seeing God as not just involved in the sort of supernatural bits, uh, the extraordinary things that don't seem very natural, but, but absolutely intimately involved in the, the natural uh, order of things which he gives us day after day. And of course, um, I've completely forgotten what I, about, what I was about to say. Well, shall I say something? Yeah, you say something And, and then you can yeah, yeah, fill in. Yeah. When, when I run out of steam, yeah, yeah. you can help sure, me out. I'm sure you'll stimulate yeah. Joe's mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a heavy day. <laughs> Possibly not, but 
if you ask why does God choose to work through agents, through creatures, rather than directly himself, I think part of the answer may be that um, if he were to always intervene when we don't, so when we fail to feed the, the poor or mm. whatever, the hungry, he were just to come and magic food in, mm. there would be no consequence to any actions that we had. Um, and our lives would be correspondingly less meaningful because they, they wouldn't have any mm. impact. They wouldn't make any difference. What we did would just be kind of, uh, if we wanted to join in, then we can. Um, whereas the way he does play it uh, actually gives us, takes us with full seriousness, gives us real um, decisions to make that really make a difference. Uh, and if if he played it differently, the way that we sometimes would like him to to, to play it, um, our lives wouldn't have that purpose and significance that they do have. So it's like when you're learning to drive, and and the instructor always uses the dual controls. You have no idea actually if you're driving a car or, or would be capable of driving a car. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and there is also, of course, the fact that if God did shout every time we were about to elect a bad leader or something like that, um, we would have no choice but to believe in such a God. Um, and again, mm. Un- mm. fundamental to everything that when that Christians say about God is that God does not force himself upon us. So we have a choice about whether we believe in God or not. And that's part of, of the honoring that God ha- that God does for us as human beings. Mm. To- and I think they also, we also wouldn't develop wisdom we would perhaps learn that when he says don't elect this person um, which he might do quite a lot I suspect uh, <clears throat> that we learn you know, it's better to go along with the voice but that's not the same as thing as developing one's own wisdom uh, and it also I think that approach underestimates our ability to sort of explain away God's action um, yep. strikes me you know we'll say, well, why doesn't God do more dramatic miracles why doesn't he sort of show himself in the in the sky mm. um it reminds me of a story where sort of an atheist and a christian were having an argument and the atheist says um okay well you know uh, i don't believe in god if there is a god may he strike me dead in 10 seconds and they counts to 10 because nothing happens and they said qed there is there is no god um now that sounds like a f- sort of knockdown argument but of course well not not down does it have not <laughs> knockdown argument um <laughs> But then another another version of the story says, you know, ten seconds, you know, um, uh, may God strike me dead, and within ten seconds the man does fall down. Dead. Everyone else is around is, is sort of shocked and 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 amazed and everything else. Um, and then there are two sort of outcomes to that story. One is that you know everyone flocks to church because of this amazing miracle that's happened. But then you're back to this thing of well. They've actually flocked to church because in some ways they were sort of forced to, not because they actually chose to. And then the second part of it is, of course, that that even if that happens, you can imagine people then say, well, he had a bit of a dicky heart anyway. Mm. Actually, it's a bit of a coincidence, really. And, you know, can't possibly be, 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 be that way. In other words, we have a very strong capacity to explain away everything uh, that happens, even if God were to do remarkable miracles. That is not a guarantee of of faith. And the same was true in the time of Jesus. You know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. It didn't mean everyone believed in him. There were lots of lots of people who actually chose not to. And um that reminds me of that story of Jesus and um you know the kind of Lazarus and Dives, the rich man, um uh and the poor man and the idea at the end where um you know whether the rich man is taken up to the bosom of Abraham and um 
Well, the poor man is taken to the bosom of Abraham and says, you know, can, can I go back to my, uh, you know, to my relations and warn them about what's going to happen? And um, Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And the man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And then he says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, we do have someone who's risen from the dead. We still don't believe. So in other words, miracles are not a, not a guarantee of belief. And even the belief they do create, is, you know, how much is that real belief or how much is it kind of forced belief, as it were? But it seems to me there are all kinds of reasons why actually uh, it doesn't work to say, well, God ought to just perform more miracles and, and show us a bit more obviously that he's there. Uh, in some ways, he already does that. And we still don't believe. I suppose then as Christians, it's, it's, it's a good discipline to actually look back and thank God for the things that he has done rather than just take them for granted. I think it's very easy just to get in the habit of taking for granted the life that we have and the gifts that we have and actually to receive them constantly as a gift and to say thank you for them I think is, is a good um, So that helps discipline. to open your eyes yeah, it does, to, to what the, is to actually just the sheer yeah. abundance of yeah. the gift that God yeah. gives each day. Yes, and developing a, a habit of gratitude. Yeah. Mm. I think the other thing is <clears throat> if we want God to be more active in the world... Um, the answer lies in our own prayer lives and mm. our own obedience. Mm. Um, because if God chooses to work primarily through his creatures, uh, then we can cooperate uh, and we can do that primarily by prayer, but also just by joining in the things that we see him doing in the person of Christ and and doing them afresh in, in our situation and context. Mm. And that's the way we will see mm. God at work. Uh, yeah. more at work than, mm. perhaps than uh, would otherwise be the case good so a um, little canter around that question really helpful question Very because helpful it does question. actually highlight how we use the language doesn't it yes. it does exactly is that right so um, extra biscuits but not just extra biscuits we have biscuits anyway so, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we have biscuits is a gift thank you very much anyway, thank you very much, Keith and thank you very much for the biscuits anyway um, we move on to another one which is from um, from Steve Jones who uh, comes from somewhere in the West Midlands. I presume that's the West Midlands of England, as opposed to any other country in the world. Mm. But uh, he says he's a long-time God-podder. Sorry about that. Can only, can only <laughs> apologise. <laughs> Obviously haven't found the way to switch it off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All the way back to Godpod 1. Wow. So, oh, goodness me. He's listened to all 83. Wow. Well done. That was the one that most Steve. of the, my jokes had to be edited out of. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yes. I recall. Yes, we We should invite him to come for the, exactly, yeah. know, the centenary one, shouldn't we? <laughs> we should. End up a quite short Godpod, if I remember, well, by the time we've taken out most of your jokes. I think <laughs> it was quite a short yeah, exactly. threadbare thing. Anyway, um... Here is Steve's question. So congratulations, Steve, for having endured 82 God Pods so far. And if you're listening to this one, um, I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, um, this is um, the question. Um, uh, really about um, the way in which um, he's drawn to Christianity and wonders where things are with it. So... Um, he says, uh, having been baptized as a baby for the majority of his uh, years, he's described himself as an atheist. Uh, a number of years ago, started to develop an interest in religion, and um, is in some ways drawn to Christianity, but in other words, in other ways, unable to embrace it. Two issues in particular. Number one, I don't have faith in Jesus. I don't want to try to force myself to or pretend that I do, but the fact is I don't. 
Uh, secondly, I have several Christian friends, and I find their faith and certainty intimidating. They all claim various personal experiences as a source of their faith, and sometimes it feels a little competitive or arrogant. I'm sure I'm doing them a disservice, but it feels a bit us against them. We don't. We have amazing experiences, and you don't. I find this feeling of exclusivity unsettling. I don't want to join a club of believers. I want to join the whole of humanity, believers or not. So what do I do now? Um, is he holding himself back, maybe scared to believe, uh, or be excluded by uncertainty? Or what's, you know, what, what would be our advice? Because I imagine that's not a unique perspective to have. I suppose mm-hmm. but there are probably a lot of people out there who are quite drawn to Christian faith by some aspects of it, but not quite able to embrace it fully. So um, what would our advice, thoughts well, be? I mean, I'd like to start by asking what faith in Jesus looks like. I mean, what does, um, did you say Steve, what does Steve mm. feel he hasn't got in relation to Jesus? Um, I mean, faith is 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 simply a, a sort of a willingness to trust. Um, so does Jesus' testimony, uh, does Jesus' life um, compel? Um, does does the, the sort of 2,000 years witness to the, the building of a people who try to follow Jesus is that interesting does it uh, which it clearly is so what 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 does he and it's a very interesting question about what he doesn't have in relation to mm. Jesus and I, I wonder I mean there's the phrase um about other Christians uh, I find their faith and certainty intimidating and those two things seem to me are quite different mm. things faith and certainty um when I say I have faith in Jesus doesn't mean I have 100% proof that Jesus is the Son of God or that God exists or anything like that, because faith seems to me is, is actually quite different from, from certainty. I might have a, an inner conviction that this is true and makes sense and, uh, and so on, but that's not the same as certainty, it seems to me. Um, and that, that a proper faith is always open to the possibility that I might be wrong. Um, I might be wrong, but I don't think I am, and therefore I'm going to invest my life in this, in Jesus Christ. Now, everybody does that to some, some extent or another, uh, whatever outlook you have on life. Um, actually, certainty is quite a kind of unattractive thing, wherever it comes from. It's equally un- unattractive from the, the atheist who's absolutely certain, 100%, that God doesn't exist. That can be quite intimidating and unattractive as well. And so uh, it seems to be a, a proper Christian faith, um, is not the same as, as certainty. And actually confusing the two may lead to more problems than, than it solves. Yes. I think, obviously, with with the person of Jesus, one has to look at the historical evidence. There's no way around that. But, but if I can leave that on the side for the moment, I think one of the things that uh, attracts me to Christian faith rather than just theistic faith is the fact that uh, I think the person of Jesus and the cross in particular defuses the person of God of what are otherwise quite dangerous elements. Um, it, it's said to be a kind of summary of postmodernism that uh, if you believe that all, all ideology reeks of the death camps, in other words, if you believe anything too strongly, you're going to end up imposing it on others. If at the centre of your vision of God... <laughs> Is center, therefore, is your vision of reality, uh, is a person who 
did not impose his agenda on others by force, who in fact allowed them to impose their agenda on him by force. Um, if the centre of that is the cross, that defuses that fear. Anybody who's been faithful to Jesus and to the view of God that one finds in Jesus um, is never going to use violence to impose their view, is never going to ex- try and extend the kingdom by violence because that goes completely counter to the nature and the example uh, of the person we claim to follow. And it goes back to the point, the question we were answering earlier on, in that precisely God does not force us into belief by bombarding yes. us with statements and miracles and, and, and um, things that we just can't avoid. He doesn't force us into faith. And that's, that's the very nature of God. So if you like, we talk about the humility of Jesus. Actually, that is the humility of God because Jesus is the exact mirror and image of the, of the nature of God. In some ways, God doesn't force himself on us, and that's precisely the point. Actually, we'd be rather worried if we had a God who did force himself upon us and did um, impose himself on us and bombard us with all this stuff all the time. So actually, the two the questions come together in that way, it seems yes, to me. They do, and there are visions of God where he does impose himself mm-hmm. upon people. Uh, Jupiter is an obvious case in mm-hmm. point. Um, whereas it seems to me that believing that Jesus is central to our understanding of who God is, actually diffuses that, that fear in a, in a really helpful way. And the other thing is, I think, if you, <clears throat> if you have a you know, put Jesus into the picture vis-a-vis the, the, the being of God, then you end up with something like the Trinity. Uh, well, I think you end up with the Trinity, in fact. Uh, and that says that the basic fact, the most true thing that is, is, is love. That's the primordial <laughs> Uh, existence is is love it's not something that's just evolved uh, and come into being and is going to stop at the big crunch uh, it's something that has always been and all, always will be that seems to me to undergird our deepest insight, insights and instincts um, as human beings we know that it's the most important thing but this tells us why it's the most important thing because uh, we've been made in the image of it um, and so if I I, I happen to find the arguments and the evidence compelling for Christian faith. But if I didn't, I think I would ground myself on the thing that most embeds my deepest instincts and, and insights. And um, I would ground, base my life on the thing that makes love permanent and not temporary, makes it eternal and not ephemeral, um, makes it central and not peripheral. And that, for me, is the doctrine of the Trinity. So for the person of Jesus to me, therefore, is central to my understanding of who God is, what life is, what we're for. And I would guess that it's that sense of being loved and wanting to love in return that it, that is the certainty, what feels like the certainty that Steve's friends are trying to share with him. If you've had that grounding, it's quite hard not to long to share it. Um, and um, and and so I think, Steve, be be gentle with your friends. They're trying to tell you something that they have found life giving and vital. And if it comes across as mm. certainty, that may be just their desperation to share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and often find sometimes even the word faith can be a little bit confusing for people because it, 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 it say it can be confused with certainty. But I often think, I mean, sometimes it's almost better to use the word trust. You know, certainly when Luther, for example, talks about justification by faith, that can sometimes be interpreted to mean, you know, I'm justified because I believe the right things. You know, I can tick the boxes of the creed and therefore I'm justified. 
or may, or in the right relationship with God. Whereas maybe a better translation of um, justitia fidei, the Latin phrase that he, he uses, is actually justification by trust. It's actually this this personal choice to put your trust in the God of Jesus Christ, which is not certainty because, of course, you know we put our trust in things and people and institutions all the time. We choose to do that or, or not choose to do that. And um, very often if we have to put our trust in a in a person um, that we're only just becoming to get to know, we're a little bit uncertain. Can I do this or, or can I not? But you think, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll actually put my trust in that person and see how, see how it works out. And in some ways that, that can be how Christian faith works as well and the early steps of it. You say, well, I, I will put my faith in Jesus Christ. I, I'll, I'll start praying as if God really is listening. I'll, I'll start reading the Bible as if... This actually is God's word to me. I'll start treating each person I meet each day as if they really are made in the image of God and valued ultimately and that Jesus died for them and so on. And then see how how that works in practice. Faith is something you almost sort of try out a little bit. I think that's very helpful because people, I think, sometimes fear that <clears throat> you have to side your life away mm-hmm. immediately in one fell swoop. Uh, whereas it's much more incremental. Uh, and organic than that and seeing if the life that that grows is actually a life that makes you feel you're flourishing Mm. Mm. um because actually all of those things you've described graham don't sound bad things (laughs) (laughs) they don't sound like they're going to wreck your life so no it's true i mean what about um what about these um uh, this question about exclusivity I don't want to join a club of believers. I want to join the whole of humanity. It can seem sometimes that the invitation to be a Christian is to sort of join some little sort of sect on the side here somewhere that's a little bit odd and weird. And surely the majority is right. It's the kind of human human race. Um, you don't want to kind of opt out of that into some strange little club like the church. Um, does Christian faith seem kind of exclusive in that way? Does it feel like opting out of the human race? Does it feel like, uh, you know, us and them? Um, because that can be a, a bit of a barrier to, to faith for some people. I think it's interesting that the, the two great commands, said so Jesus says, love God and love your neighbour. There's no mention of your co-religionist in there. Mm. Um, those are the two main things. Now, there are bits in uh, the New Testament that talk, talk about testing the reality of your love for God by how you respond to your brothers and sisters within the religious community. But it seems to me that that's a kind of school of love (laughs) that helps you to do the two main ones, which are to love God and to love neighbour. And uh, if if it doesn't become something that helps you do those things, it it becomes something very unpleasant. I I do share Steve's abhorrence of that, I think. And it, um, it it does partly arise out of um, taking the whole um, understanding of Jesus out of the context of what we really believe about the whole of God, taking mm. out of the context of the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, God is the one who creates out of overflowing joy and love mm. and who comes to live and die as Jesus to to restore that relationship with all that is made. It isn't in order to... Mm. Um, uh, choose a few people to join his club but to extend that invitation um, that was given in creation to all and it will be a freely extended invitation which can be refused presumably um, so again it's, we're not going back to the God forcing us um, but it's the action of the one who made all things um, and who is also uh, to be seen in Jesus mm. and therefore presumably cares about all things 
Mm. And it seems to be important to say that when you become a Christian, you don't stop being human. It's not like you're opting out of the human race and you're joining some little no. weird club that is somehow less than human. In fact, it's almost the other way around. And it's something that I think you've often said, Mike, which is that actually to become a Christian, it actually is to become or to become more like Jesus Christ, who is the true human being, the most fully alive human being we've ever seen, is actually to become more human and not less. In fact, the further we are from Jesus Christ, the less human we are, because the more we're consumed by the things that are the opposite of Christ, the more we're consumed by jealousy and anger and lust and and greed and, and everything else. That actually is somehow less than human. Actually, to become more like Jesus, full of love and humility and grace and kindness and gentleness and self-control that is full humanity that those kind of people when you meet them they are the most human of people so actually the invitation to come to 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 faith in jesus seems to mean on the one hand not not an invitation to leave the human race and join a slightly odd odd group of people to become abnormal it's actually the invitation to become truly normal for the first time and uh and to become a, a a proper member of the human race in the fullest sense of that word um so you still have brothers and sisters in the rest of the human race we still remain part of it but you're even more human than you ever were before but that is a real challenge to those of us who are who call ourselves christians then isn't it because i mean we we all know that we can look like an odd little club that hmm. doesn't really want to have anything to do with anybody else so we actually need to yeah. re-explore and reimagine our own faith <laughs> <laughs> under that kind of challenge, don't we? Yes, and a, a sectarian spirit is a very ugly thing. Yeah. Um, and one does see it. Um, but where it is a school, the church acts as it should be, as a school for love and a school for humanity, mm. uh, enabling people to become more like the human beings that they were created to be, um, I think that becomes a more attractive thing. Mm. Well, very good question, Steve. Mm. Excellent question. Really helpful. And um, hope that uh, helps in, in some small way to um, make some progress on these things and um, carry on listening to Godpod. Um, well, we have one more question to go. It's quite a big one, but I slightly hesitate to take it on, given that we've only got a few, a few minutes left in this bit of Godpod. But we'll have a go. It gives anyway. an excuse for triteness. Yes. <laughs> Superficiality. <that's right. laughs> we don't usually need an excuse for triteness. <laughs> Superficiality, but it's always nice to have one. <laughs> Um, so this is one from uh, Nick Cooper from Northampton. And I have a kind of fake feeling we might have had one or two questions from Nick before. And he asks very sophisticated questions. But anyway, just uh, um, briefly, this is, uh, do you have any thoughts on the idea of deification? Uh, by this I mean uh, becoming God in some form and not merely becoming like God. And uh, he explains about how say, in the Eastern tradition of Christianity, this idea of deification, theopoiesis, is a crucial part of what, what it means to be saved, what it's what salvation is about. It means um, kind of becoming God in some way rather than becoming like God. And he points out how in Western Christianity, both Protestantism and Catholicism, that's a much less um, frequently encountered idea. Um, so what, what, do we, what do we make of that whole idea of deification? We've been speaking in the last question about becoming more human, um, is there a sense in which we become divine in uh, encountering Jesus Christ in Christian faith and so on? I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's Athanasius in the fourth century isn't it, who says that um, God becomes human, uh, to, God shares our life so that we may share his. 
Um, and I think that's a good way of describing deification. It is about gift still. And the, the problem with the word taken out of the context in which it fits in, in um, particularly in, in Eastern Orthodox theology, is that um, we then read in our understanding of what it is to be God. Mm. So um, we, we read in notions of power and autonomy and all of that kind of thing, rather than remembering the God it is whose life is being offered to us to share in. Um, uh, and so I, th- I think it, um, in Athanasius and in others, it, it is always in that relational context. Uh, God comes to live our life um, because we have detached our lives from, from his and therefore have um, begun to wilt and disintegrate. Um, and God comes to live our life so, that, so as to reconnect the possibility of human lives into um, the source of all life, which is the relational life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think to become deified is to become, again, somebody um, uh, born to be connected, born to be connected to God and to other people. That's mm. deification. Okay. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, I think that's exactly right. That we, we if you never lose. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice on you were that you, concerned <laughs> about disagreeing with me, Jay. That's that frown you wear all the time. Like, <laughs> this is worried. Um, but the, we never lose the relational side. So it's not that we are in danger of getting swallowed up by the being of God. Um, there's a bit where uh, Screw Tape, the senior devil, um, in writing to his junior devil nephew Wormwood. Uh, desires to, to devour him uh, so that he becomes part of him. That's not the sort of God we have. We have this God who does, as Rowan Williams is often saying, does not compete with us for space. He's not the sort of God who um, is a threat to who we are because he wants a relationship with us. So, But it's a relationship almost that becomes internal to the conversation of love that is the Trinity. Um, there's the famous passage in 2 Peter uh, where we're told that um, through, through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Mm-hmm. Participate in the divine nature. And that, of course, is the only cure for being finite, the only cure for mortality is to be connected, as, as you say, Jane, with, with that which is eter- eternal and connected internally, if I can put it like that, without losing our distinctiveness and our relationality with God and with one another. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think the the reason why perhaps Western theology has been a little bit nervous about language of deification um, on both Protestant and Catholic sides is is the the danger of blurring the distinction between the creator creator and the creation, um, because I think that has been a, a strong strand of Western Christ- theology to say actually there is a there is a big difference between the creation and the creator. There is no join. It's not a sort of a kind of you know a, a continuum hmm. um, where somewhere there's no real line drawn between them actually there is God and there is creation creation is not God um, God is not created and therefore to keep that distinction quite firmly in mind as, as always I think to Western theologians been quite a quite a, a, a crucial thing hmm. not saying it's not crucial to Eastern theologians either but that, I think, has been the nervousness behind language of deification. Having said that, uh, there are a number of Western theologians who do actually 
um, are quite interested in this area, particularly in the Reformation, interestingly enough. There's a, a recent school of, of Luther scholarship um, which came out of Finland um, a number of years ago that was exploring dialogue between the Lutherans and the Orthodox um, around this very idea, suggesting that there are aspects of Luther, Luther's own theology that, that lend themselves to sort of deification language. I think most Luther scholars think they may have gone a bit too far in that, but there's, there's certainly an idea of that. There are one or two, again, cases where Calvin himself talks about um, talks in language which sound like deification as well. So it's not entirely foreign to um, to Western theology, uh, and even in Eastern theology as well. There's there's a certain reserve about it. I think it's Basil the Great who talks about how the goal of uh, of Christian life is that is that we might become uh, conformed to God as much as is possible for human nature. So if you like, he, he acknowledges. Yeah. Um, Again, the distinction between the creation and the creator. Now, having said all that, the language we use <coughs> is quite important because what I mean, the, the, the text you read out, Mike, uses the language of participation, yes. that we might participate in the divine nature. And that's a language which, say, Calvin, for example, is very comfortable with and uses quite a lot, which I think is actually what he means by deification. He means that actually it, there is, it is genuinely possible to participate in the nature of God. Now, that's not quite becoming God's being swallowed up by God in some pantheistic um, sort of sense that we are, you know, we, we become uncreated. Exactly. Yes, yes. We will always remain created. We are created beings. That distinction will always remain in, in place. But what Christian faith does say is that doesn't mean that we are ultimately distant from God. It is actually possible to participate in the divine life, even as created beings. That's what we are invited into in Christian faith, and that's a, an immense privilege, and and it's um, and so in so in one sense that the the distance between God and creation is overcome in this idea of participation in which to which we are invited by the Holy Spirit uh, in Christ in fellowship with the Father. I think the word inviting is exactly right. There's a difference between being invited into the being God of God and being sucked in. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, it's not some kind of black hole that's going to draw us in and, and destroy our you know, compact us so that we're just part of everything else. Um, the two images, if you like, are on the one hand, the kind of sucking in image is a bit like the, the old Buddhist legend of the salt, salt doll who is persuaded by the sea to go and walk mm. into the sea and, of course, dissolves into it mm. and there's nothing left of it. Uh, that's the kind of wrong image here, I think. Um, the, the famous Rublev icon of the persons of the Trinity sitting around a table, sitting around three sides of a table mm. with a a chalice mm. uh, there open on the table and and we are invited to join that conversation mm. to join mm. that fellowship to eat at that table to drink from that chalice mm. um it's an invitation that preserves who we are but in a degree of unity and union that we would never dream of and i, I think again whenever you use a word like deification you have to remember that what it, what divine nature it is that we are invited to participate yes. in and it isn't our image of what a god should be like it's the it's the one that god shows us himself mm. in 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 the incarnation in jesus mm. and that's mm. not as often not the kind of deification that we want um so it's actually yep. a real um learning of the the nature of god that we are being asked to participate mm. in which mm. has all kinds of consequences for the for the way we live, for what our calling is as as created beings in this world, and so on. Which is why you know the, I think the answer to this is is a fully trinitarian one yep. because the the God into whom into whom we are invited is the God of Jesus Christ, the God that we see in the 
face and person of Jesus Christ. And we are, if you like, invited by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit fills us, draws us into Christ. We begin to know that participation in the life of the uh, of God Himself. Uh, it is only by the Spirit, who is, of course, as the early fathers insisted, is who is fully divine, just as much as the Father and the Son are. That Spirit coming to dwell in us <coughs> makes us one with Christ, so that we can know fellowship with the Father. We can we can know this love of God that exists between the Father and the Son, into which we amazingly are invited and can begin to participate ourselves and we can know the love that love of god for the creation and so if we are invited into this participatory love then that will give us responsibilities joys and Mm. sorrows for the world that god has made harry williams in a sermon on trinity sunday talks about the trinity as um, the cure for two deep human fears one is um, isolation mm. on the other hand, on one hand lo- loneliness mm. um, lack of relationship and the other is assimilation mm. losing your distinctiveness your reality your identity and the trinity says no you you can be other and yet utterly one mm. uh, you remain exactly who you are in fact it's in re- close relationship that you are most yourself not that you're least yourself wonderful well we've come to the end of god pod 83 thank you very much jane pleasure thank you michael thank you um thank you again keith for the biscuits thank you everybody else for us who's sending in their questions i'm sorry for those of you who have not been able to ask you your questions yet but please keep them coming in because uh, every time we have a look through and see which ones we um we want to talk about and um uh, we would love to hear more questions that you have sent in so um thank you for listening to godpod 83 we'll be back very shortly with godpod 84 until then goodbye bye bye that was godpod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.